sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love your Lord, we love you and we thank you for all who have come. Lord, I want you to give your word to hungry people. It's the hungry people, Lord, that you've called. You have not called the great. You have not called the mighty. You have not called those who are just intelligent and educated, but you have called those who are hungry. God, and I want those who are hungry to experience you today. And I want the word of the Lord to seep down deep into their hearts, I pray. Bless them for coming and bless them as they go in Jesus' name. So we now come to the Gospel of Matthew. This is uh, the Gospel of Matthew part one. And we have spent some time in the Torah, also called the Pentateuch, having studied the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. We remember that the Torah are the first five books of the Bible, which is why it's also called the Pentateuch, which means five. Um, and we've covered Genesis and the book of Exodus. I think that for some of you, you didn't realize just how thorough we were going to be in those books. But I would say that anyone who studied uh, in thy word, Genesis and Exodus probably has a very good understanding of both of those books. And I'm going to go out, and I'm not being proud here, but I'm, I'm being honest, more than what you would have learned had you gone to Bible college. You would, have, you would not have learned this much. So if you can persevere, we'll all grow together in learning the, about the Word of God. And I'm learning as we go, too. Every time you read the Bible, you, read, you learn, right? We never come to an end of it. Uh, so we spent time in the Torah, and our focus in thy word is on Jesus. We saw him there in Genesis and in Exodus. He is in the promises. He's in the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, he said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Jesus said the scriptures are about him. They give a testimony of him. We saw him uh, as the promised seed of the woman, Eve, whose heel would be bruised, but who would crush the head of the serpent. We're going to see him crush the head of the serpent here in the book of Matthew. We saw him as the ark of Noah. We saw him in the offering of Abraham's only son, Isaac. We saw him as the king and the priest in Melchizedek. We saw him as Messenger Jehovah or Malach Jehovah, the angel of the Lord. We saw him as the word Jehovah or Devar Jehovah, the word of God, who led the children of Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We saw him high and lifted up. 
He was seen by Moses. He was seen by Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. We saw him as types and shadows in the tabernacle of Moses. He's in its furniture. He's in the altar. He's in the laver. He's in the lampstand. He's in the table of shewbread. He's in the bread upon the table of shewbread. He's the golden altar of incense. He's the ark of the covenant, and he is the mercy seat. We saw him in the high priest of Israel. He is the high priest, and he is the sacrifice. We saw him in the midst of the tribes of the nation of Israel. Now we talked about, for those of us who were here, why there are four Gospels. And we learned that at the entrance to the tabernacle courtyard, there were four pillars. And there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are also four cherubim mentioned around the throne of God. We see that in the scripture. And this is important because We remember that there was a pattern of the camp of Israel around the tabernacle. And the pattern of the camp was ordered by the Lord. The Israelites camped around the tabernacle by their tribes. And we remember in our study that on the east side of the camp of Israel, the chief tribe was Judah. And the banner of the tribe of Judah was a lion. On the north side, the chief tribe was Dan, and the banner of Dan was the eagle. On the west side, the chief tribe was Ephraim, and the banner for the tribe of Ephraim was an ox. To the south, the chief tribe was the tribe of Reuben. That banner was a man. And we've talked about how this was not accidental, right? These particular creatures, these the the ox, the the uh, the lion, the Man, uh, these were uh, these were part of God's pattern, and we see again in Ezekiel chapter one and verse ten, we find a depiction of the cherubim, and we talked about that. Uh, uh, Ezekiel one and verse ten, regarding the form and appearance of their faces, they each had the face of a man. Now we see that in the banner. Uh, one of the banners of Israel, and each had a face of a lion on the right side and the face of an ox on the left side. All four also had the face of an eagle at the back of their head. So there are four images on display in the cherubim who surround the throne of God. And there are four main banners in the tribes of Israel that surround the tabernacle, the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. Now, bear with me here. If you haven't heard this before, there are four Gospels and there are four pillars at the entrance, the way into the tabernacle. And I believe that this is why there are four Gospels. The Lord could have told us the story in one story, in one book, but he did not choose to do that. He chose to give us four Gospels looking at Jesus in a different light, from a different angle, from four different Angles And each of the Gospels depict Jesus Christ, but in a different way. So we are in Matthew today. And Matthew depicts Jesus as one who has the lineage of the king of Israel. He is the son of David of the tribe of Judah, the rightful king of Israel. He is the lion 
of the tribe of Judah. Matthew is represented by the lion. Mark depicts Jesus as a servant. He is the suffering servant that was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, and he is doing the work of the one who sent him. Mark is represented by the ox. And Luke, the physician, traces the genealogy of Jesus to the first man, Adam, and depicts his humanity, Jesus, the son of man. And Luke is represented by the man. And John begins at another genealogy. He is more than just a man in the book of John. He is before creation. And John declares that Jesus was God and in the beginning with God. He is the creator whose going forth is of old from everlasting. And the gospel of John shows Jesus the deity, the son of God. And it is depicted as the eagle. So you see, Jesus is in the center of the gospels. And it's Jesus who's in the center of the cherubim. And that's what it's showing us. The Bible is full of patterns, and that's why we can understand exactly who he is. The Bible is never, there's never an accident anywhere in the scripture. And we're going to get into that when we get into the genealogy. I have somebody text me today, Brother Lopez, I won't say who, Pepe. Um, <laughs> and he said, do we have to read the begats? Now, people have fallen into that mistake before, haven't they, Sister Carrie? Yes, and she says, I'm with you, yeah, but we remember the last begats. Remember, we were reading begats before, and we found some interesting things in them. But can I say this, that G without Jesus, the Old Testament makes no sense. None at all. It is, and I don't, because I've read it, and it is filled with types and shadows. And imagine without a New Testament. And if you just had the Old Testament, what you would have are types and shadows, and, and, and these would remain shadows. And they would remain unfulfilled types without Jesus. There are hundreds of prophecies that would be unfulfilled if Jesus had not come on the scene. Completely unfulfilled. There are rituals and sacrifices, laws and customs that make no sense at all until they are viewed in the light of Jesus Christ. In short, without Jesus, the Old Testament is incomplete. We do not have a complete Bible without Jesus. It's just a collection of religious customs, of ceremonies, of histories, unfulfilled prophecies, and indiscernible shadows. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, Jesus walked with two disciples on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection. They did not recognize him as they walked together, and he taught them the scriptures and the Bible reads, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded. Where did he begin? Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all of the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself said that he's in the Torah that he's in the prophets, and that's what it is all about. And i, I got to tell you, the Bible, and I've heard this before, and I, ha I have to agree with this. The Bible is not about you. Honestly, it's, it's not about you. And we like to look at it. Oh, David 
stood out there and he took his sling and he went after the giant. If I could just stand up like David and conquer my giant. You're not David. If anything, we're the crowd doing nothing, standing there watching him do the work. Because we're afraid to go out there. And we couldn't beat the giant if we wanted to. If we stepped out there, we'd be dead. But see, the greater than David is here. And we're going to meet him in Matthew. He's the one who is the son of David. He's the one who's going to conquer the true giant, the giant of sin. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. And that was all about Jesus. And by the way, we're going to get into a little area that's kind of a Ricky Taylorism in that. And it's about the place called Golgotha. And I'll give you a little hint. What was the name of the giant? Goliath. Where did Goliath live? Golgotha, the place of the skull. What did David do with Goliath's head? Couldn't have been kept in the city. It was unclean. Where David put the head of Goliath, Jesus overcame the devil. He's the, he's the one that's greater than David. He's the one that the Bible is all about. Anyway, I, I stepped into it. Praise God. Moses, the Torah, and the prophets wrote of Jesus. He is the center of the scriptures. And without the light of Jesus shining on the Old Testament, we don't understand it. We have meaningless, bloody sacrifices, unfulfilled promises. We have a law that cannot be kept. And you can't keep the law. No Jew has kept the law since at least the time of Christ. They've not been able to. They maybe keep about 29 to 30 statutes of the law. The rest they can't keep because there's no temple. Right? Yeah. So you can't even keep the law. And we have a religion written on tablets of stone that have been lost to history. But with Jesus, we have a beautiful tapestry of prophecy fulfilled a mosaic of types and shadows which show us the beauty and nature of the plan of God for our salvation and the love he has for humanity. We see the nature of God when we see Jesus. In the Old Testament, we have a glimpse of him. But in the New Testament, we see him. He's declared to us. He's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We, with Jesus, we have a warm relationship with a loving and living God, not a cold religion written on tablets of stone, but the Word of God written on our hearts. So we now come to the Gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew, or Matai in Hebrew, Matai, is also called Levi. I, I guess you could probably guess what tribe he might belong to, right? The tribe of Levi. And he was a sinner. He was a tax collector. In fact, he was a traitor to his people as far as the people were concerned. This is a man who collected taxes for Rome. And, but Jesus called him. Jesus reached out. In fact, he didn't call him when he decided to go to the synagogue and cleanse his way. But we find an account of this in Luke chapter 5 verses 27 to 31 it reads after these things he went and saw a tax collector named levi and levi was sitting at the tax office and he said to him 
you dirty, filthy, rotten sinner and traitor to the Jews. No. And you know, this is amazing when you consider that the Pharisees were people who looked righteous on the outside. Who tried to keep every part of the law. And were so, in their minds, the righteous ones, the Sadducees, are actually called the Sedukim, the righteous ones. That's what they name themselves. We are the righteous ones. And yet, Jesus stands out there, and he ignores them, doesn't choose them. He looks over, he sees a tax collector, and he says, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you come eat with us? We're the holy ones. We're the righteous ones. We're the ones that are worthy of you. This is what they always had in their heart. And you know, can I tell you, God hates that. Yes. The Lord hates that. Can I tell you, none of us are worthy. That's the whole heart of the gospel. The whole reason for the law was to show you that you cannot keep the law. You cannot make yourself worthy. And these men tried. If anybody could keep the law, it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And all they can say is, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What a wonderful God we serve. The Jews hated tax collectors, and Matthew was an unlikely candidate to be an apostle. But God chooses who he chooses, and I thank God that he does, because most of us are unlikely candidates for the gospel. I mean, honestly, me? An atheist? Teaching the word of God that I used to argue against? Think about that. What a mighty God we serve. So now we now begin with Matthew chapter 1, and we are going to begin with the begats, Brother Pepe. And it reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now we remember that sordid tale, don't we, from the book of Genesis chapter 38. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, listen to this, by Rahab. <laughs> I mean, when you think of the people that God chooses, Rahab was a harlot who lived on the wall of, of Jericho, in a house on the wall of Jericho. And here she is in the lineage. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So what's unique about this gene genealogy, especially for the Jewish people, is that there are uh, three women mentioned in it by name, Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab. And Bathsheba is also alluded to, but 
Rahab the harlot, if we remember, she was a woman of Jericho. And we find her story in the book of Joshua. Joshua sent two spies to Jericho. And when the men of Jericho became aware of their presence, they began to search for them. Rahab hid the spies. And uh, she saved their lives. And why did she do this? Because she believed the God of Israel. She knew that he was God. And she knew by faith that she didn't have a chance. The walls of Jericho were going to fall. They were going to defeat Jericho. So she made a deal with them to spare their lives and they would spare her lives and all of the people who were in her home. So she was to take a red cord. We remember that, right? She was to take a red cord and hang it from her window. Now, this is a lot like the Passover, right? Take the blood of the lamb and put it on the lintel and the doorpost of your house and the death angel will pass over you and you will be spared. And now they tell this woman, take this red cord and hang it out your window. And when we come, we will spare you and everyone in your house. And, of course, this is a type as the Passover lamb, the blood of the Passover, the Passover lamb was a type of Jesus. And the blood of the lamb was the blood of Jesus. That cord that she hung from the window represents the blood of the lamb. And we see here that Rahab is in the literal bloodline of Jesus Christ. So Ruth, who the book of Ruth was written about, was also, she was a Moabitish. And she was married to an Israelite, and when he died, she remained with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was also a widow. They came to Bethlehem, and Boaz, who was a near kinsman, uh, performed the duty of the kinsman redeemer, married Ruth, and most Jewish men would not have married Ruth. Why? She was a Moabitess, and there was actually a curse placed on the Moabitess unto, I'm trying to remember the generation, because it's just off the top, but I believe it's to the 10th generation, that no Moabite could enter into the tabernacle of the Lord. You could not enter into the house of the Lord. You could not approach the house of the Lord. And we see here that he went ahead and married her, and we know why now, and it's because his mother was Rahab, the harlot, and she also was a Gentile from Jericho, and this is not in my notes, but I can tell you that if you begin the genealogy and start the countdown, David was the 10th generation from, no, we're going to go all the way back, to Ruth, who is the Moabitess. Yes, so there it is. David the king begot Solomon by her, and if I'm wrong, hey, you know, I don't have my notes up here. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, and we know that's Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Now, I'm not going to read all this. It goes all the way through these people, these sons of David, and ends with this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Babe, I should have had you bring some seven up or something for the sevens here today, because this would have been a good one. Our 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, if I gave you a little homework, and I like this, if I gave you a little homework today, and I said you can even fictionalize it, you don't have to have a real genealogy, but I want you to go home, I want you to take your laptop, I want you to open it up, and I want you to write a genealogy 
very much, or let's say similar to this particular genealogy. Could you do it? I want you to do just as many names. And you can make them up. Could you do it? I, I could do it. I, I could be done before I leave here. No problem at all. But now you have to follow several rules. So the first rule is, I want you to write this genealogy, but the number of words of the genealogy must be divisible by seven evenly. Could we do that? I think I could do it. Okay, so I just need to, you know, I, I need this many and it'll be divisible by seven evenly. I, I can handle that. I'm sure Sister Tanya could. She's a teacher, right? <laughs> but now let's add another rule. The number of letters must also be divisible by seven evenly. So not just the number of words, but the number of letters. We could probably do that. It'd probably take a little more time, but we could probably figure it out, right? But now the number of vowels and the number of consonants must also be divisible by seven. Okay, now I've probably got a couple days' work here. I might be able to accomplish it, maybe. It would be tough, but I couldn't do it before I left here tonight. The number of words that begin with a vowel must be divisible by seven. I don't think I can do it now. The number of words that begin with a consonant must be divisible by seven. Now I know I can't do it. The number of words that occur more than once must be divisible by seven. That means if it, incur, if, if it occurs one time, you count them all up, that number has to be divisible by seven. And all these other things on top of that. Okay, could you do it? Okay, how about this? Only seven words shall not be nouns. The number of names shall be divisible by seven. Only seven other kinds of nouns are permitted. The number of male names shall be divisible by seven. The number of generations shall be divisible by seven. Let me bottom line this for you. If I gave you a computer and I gave you an office full of people who all had computers, and I magically gave you a million years, you could not do it. It's not possible. And these are statisticians who have looked at this. It's not possible. And yet, Matthew wrote that very thing with a quill and a bottle of ink. This is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Greek in the book of Matthew. It is absolutely astounding, and yet he did it. If you want to learn more about this, I recommend there are books written by Ivan Panin, and this is a man, a doctor, who dedicated his life to the study of numerical patterns in the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible. His books are astounding. And that's only the beginning. This, uh, the, the seven, the numericals of seven continue all throughout the book of Matthew. This is just the genealogy. What I'm telling you is we have a book that should not exist, that could not have been written. It cannot be coincidence, but it was written by a quill pin by a man who is a tax collector. Right? How many of you have watched The Chosen? The, the new show about The Chosen? With No? Okay, I recommend that to you. It's a great show. 
and it's about the life of Jesus Christ, the apostles that are around him. And they depict Matthew as uh, being on the Asperger's scale. Okay? He's kind of uh, what we call... Um, right? And it's a form of autism. And they depict him that way because of things like this. How did he do this? And yet... I believe he did it by the Holy Spirit. I don't believe he had to be autistic or have Asperger's. But now let's continue. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. What does the law say? What does the law say should have happened to Mary? Yes. Yeah, but he was a just man and kept her from the judgment of the law. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, your, to take you marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to have a little fun here. Can somebody tell me who the father of Jesus is? The Holy Spirit. Isn't the father the father? How come the Bible says the Holy Spirit? I'll let you guys answer that yourself. Amen. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, or salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. So he's called Jesus because the name Yeshua means salvation. His Hebrew name is Yeshua. And I, I got to tell you guys, sometimes we get on this a lot. We talk about the name of Jesus and, and all this, and, and it's a wonderful name. And in our language, that is his name. Of course, if you speak Spanish, his name is Jesus. Okay, but his name was Yeshua. Okay, and Yeshua means salvation. Can I tell you that the name Jesus didn't even exist for about 300 years after his resurrection? What it was is they took and translated the name Yeshua into Isua. And then because the Greeks uh, believed that a, a great man should have an S at the end of his name, they added the S and it became Yasuas. And then after a while, it became the J sound because they got the J into their language, gave us Jesus, but that's how we get the name Jesus. His name was Yeshua. Now, if you were not baptized in the name of Yeshua and you were baptized in the name of Jesus, you were baptized into him. If you were baptized in the name of Jesus down in Mexico or even here, you were baptized into him. Isn't that wonderful to know? We're baptized into him. God's not going to say, I'm sorry you didn't speak Hebrew and you're not coming in. Okay, we're baptized into him. But his name is Yeshua. Shua. Uh, so that's and that's going to be on the trivia, okay? When I get you, when I have the candy and I throw it out to you. <laughs> Amen. Um, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, "Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn 
and he called his name Jesus. We now have the virgin birth. And we remember in the book of Genesis, this was prophesied in the third chapter. And a lot of people miss it. Of course, we pass right by. Um, I wasn't going to expound on it, but I will. There was a the judgment of sin. Adam had sinned. Eve had sinned. Eve was tempted by the serpent, and God brought forth judgment upon the serpent and upon Adam and Eve. And God himself gave the prophecy, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush his head. Now, what's interesting about that is women don't have seed. Men have seed. That's a male thing. The seed is with the male, and the Bible weighs that out. So how is there a seed of a woman, but not the seed of a man? A virgin birth. And we also look at Calvary, and it's interesting. We've studied this a little bit, and you could actually go online and, and look it up. But they found a hill that was calcified that had a nail in it from someone who had been crucified. And the nail went through the hill. They weren't like this. But they were like this, each side of the foot on one side of the cross, and a nail put right through the center of the hill. Mm -hmm. You shall bruise his hill. He will crush your head. By the way, how did David kill Goliath? With a stone that crushed his head, and then he ran up and cut his head off. See how this all fits? But we'll get to that later. Amen. <laughs> So now we come to Matthew chapter 2. We have the visit of the Magi. The Magi. Uh, and we see them all the time. We, we have the three wise men. Of course, there were probably many more than three. Uh, and they were magicians or wise men from the east. We remember the magicians of Egypt. And, and those were wise men, sorcerers, uh, people uh, who were basically in the occult, many of them. And these were very powerful, politically influential men. We know that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were wise men or magi uh, in the kingdom of Babylon and then the subsequent kingdom. So we know that it is very possible that the magi who followed the star had knowledge handed down from the prophet Daniel. They knew what they were looking for, and they knew what it meant when it appeared. And I think very likely Daniel had written some information down that these people were following. The Magi caused a stir among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it wasn't just three men on camels, but it was a large procession. They, were probably, they probably had a small army with them because it was a dangerous trek for them. And these were powerful, powerful men. Uh, their coming was not a small thing. So let's look at verse 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So they made an uproar in the city. And they were all troubled. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Can I tell you that there are two kinds of people found here in the second chapter of Matthew, and those, there are those who came to worship him, to kneel before him, and there are those who hated him. And can I also tell you that the entire world is in one of those two categories. You are either going to worship him or you are going to hate him. There is no third choice. And as we go through the scripture, you're going to find out Jesus never gives a third choice. He gives two choices. And we have basically two choices, yes or no. Right? We will follow you or we will not follow you. Nobody is on the sidelines. Micah 5, uh, the entire world, uh, so uh, let me just say that he was more than just a babe. He was more than just a king, but Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Let's, let's look at Micah 5, 2, and this is where we find this prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And he's not just a ruler. Because the prophet said, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So there's one born in Bethlehem who's going to be from everlasting. In other words, from eternity. That means that the one born in Bethlehem was before everything that exists and everything that was made. We know who he is. We had a glimpse of him in Genesis and Exodus, and we'll continue to glimpse him all throughout the Bible. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them that time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, can I tell you that the Magi knew about stars? Uh, but this was something unique. This was something special. How many people have ever followed a star? Can I get you anywhere? Probably not. How many people have ever seen a star move? Oh, look, oh, it's over there. No, it's going, it's going from the east to the west. We better follow it. I've never done that. So it makes you wonder what this actually is. Okay, and now everything that I'm going to talk about right now is a Ricky Taylorism, which means it's almost certainly not true. And I don't want you to believe it, but I'm going to say it anyway. So what was the star of Bethlehem? And we talk a lot about, in Genesis especially, the light of the world. Um, John 8, 12 uh, says uh, that he, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. They were following a star, weren't they? And he said, if you follow me, you shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So we find the star in Matthew acting like no other star. And it makes me wonder, was it really a star at all? Now, it probably was, because I'm almost certainly wrong, but I'll still share with you my view. 
And I've heard suggestions over the years, you'll hear them almost every time around Christmas, about what the star might have been. Some say it's a supernova. Some say it's an alignment of Jupiter, or it's a cosmic phenomenon. And I'm not convinced of any of these theories. And I found that the best commentator on the Bible is what? The Bible. The Bible. So let's look at the Bible. And I believe that the Bible tells us exactly what the star is. And we were in, of course, the book of Genesis. We quote that very often. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved up on the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And remember that this light was not the light of the sun, because the sun was created on the fourth day. And we taught in the book of Genesis, and we believe now that that was not the light of the sun, but it was God who manifested his spirit as light. And Jesus was the light of the world. And he was the light from the beginning. And the life was the light of men. That's what it says about Jesus. So I believe that light to be Jesus. That's who he was. Now, in his pre-incarnate form, I'm not saying that as a man, the man Christ Jesus was there, but that which would become the man Christ Jesus, which we saw as Malach Yehovah, or the messenger of the Lord, or Davar Yehovah, which is the word of God. We see both of these manifestations of God in the Old Testament. And the Bible says in John chapter 1, the word became flesh. And that's what we're dealing with here. That word was the life. The life was the light of men. And we see a precedent throughout the scriptures of God manifesting his spirit as either light or fire. And even the fire has an interesting description of being dazzling. So the Lord spoke to Moses from a burning bush. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And once again, that fire was seen as dazzling. It was a bright light. After the construction of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, this manifestation remained above the tabernacle, and we call it the glory cloud or the Shekinah, uh, which means the dwelling. He Shekhan, he dwelt. When the glory cloud remained still, the children of Israel remained still. When it moved, they moved. So hundreds of years later, Solomon built the temple, and the Bible says, and I like this, it's contemporary English Bible, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it says, As soon as Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and burnt up the offerings, and the Lord's dazzling glory then filled the temple, and the priests could not go in. When the crowd of the people saw the fire and the Lord's glory, they knelt down and Worship. So we notice that the Lord's glory was dazzling. It was bright. And we find this all throughout the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 17, we're going to see that Jesus takes Peter, uh, James, and John up into a high mountain. And he's transfigured. And his face shines like the sun. And his clothes become as white as the light. And when Saul, who would become Paul, was on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden he was blinded by a light from heaven that flashed all around him, and it was Jesus speaking to him. He was the light. So what does this have to do with the star of Bethlehem? Well, remember the glory of God that filled the temple with dazzling light? We were talking about that, right? It appears that the glory remained in the temple until when the people 
of Judah became so wicked, God decided to leave their temple. And Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10, he describes, he says, the cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. And finally in Ezekiel 11:23, he records the sad tale, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. When the glory of the Lord departed, it departed to the east. And it disappeared over the mountains of the east, which, by the way, is the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is going to come back, set his foot, and go through the eastern gate. You see, east is a very important direction in the Bible. Remember, we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden eastward. The Lord's going to lead us back through the eastern gate. And you all know, and I, you, know, you know that I believe that Jerusalem is the, the actual place of the Garden of Eden, for those of you who are in Genesis. So all of this makes sense when you look at it like that. So the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, the dazzling light, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, departed the temple, leaving Jerusalem through the eastern gate. And then we see in Matthew chapter 2, Magi. And they're following what they call a star, a dazzling light, a light that they can actually follow. And which direction are they coming from? They're coming from the east. You see? Uh, do you think that's a coincidence? I just don't think it's a coincidence. Now, it's probably wrong because I believe it, but it, it's, it's still a, a really hard co coincidence to say, wow, that's just a coincidence, right? That the glory of the Lord from the temple of God departed eastward, and now all of a sudden, they're following this light from the east, and where does it go? It's interesting because Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it. And they said he was talking about his body. Jesus' body is the temple. And the glory of God was returning to the temple. That's what I believe. And what did the shepherds see that night while watching their sheep in Luke chapter 2? The, the, the chapter 2 reads, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, I'm going to stop here, but let me just say I believe they saw the glory of the Lord. And who's the glory of the Lord? He has always been the light. He was the light in Genesis chapter 1. He was the life and the life was the light of men. That's who he is. Jesus is from everlasting. He has always been, always will be, 
He was here before time, before space, before matter. And by his hand, all things were made. That's what the Bible says about him. He's not just a man. And there's a reason why he came. And he came to do what we could not. Amen. And that was to be the David, to be the son of David, to slay that giant that we could not overcome, the seed of the serpent. Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate thy word, God. And I ask you to bless these people again, twice blessed if they stay for prayer. Lord, we love you, and I feel your presence here, and I want to know more of you. I want to know more about your word. I want to know more about who you are, God. To understand the word is to understand more of you. To know the heart of God is to know the word of God. And to love the word is to love you, Lord. We worship you. We praise you. In the name above every other name, the name of Jesus, our Savior. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart.